You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We'll turn our attention back to Genesis chapter 4, looking once again at the account of Cain and Abel. Let me direct your attention, starting in verse 1 again, uh, we'll look at briefly what we looked at last week and let it set the stage for um, the conclusion of, of this portion of the story. It says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. We discussed last week the birth of Cain and, and the, the hope that surrounded the birth of Cain, the fact that God had promised to send uh, someone from Adam and Eve that would ultimately defeat the serpent, the serpent that had led them astray in chapter 3, that there was promise of victory in the future, that, that this condition of bondage to sin was not going to be permanent. God demonstrates that by removing them from the Garden of Eden, doesn't permit them to eat of the tree of life in their sinful condition. And so there was hope, and we see hope exude from Eve as she exclaims that, that she's received a man from the Lord. And she uh, is anticipating, hopeful anticipation, that this may be the salvation promised. Um, but we know that, that ultimately it ends up being a different type of fulfillment, because in Genesis 3, not only was there promise of deliverance through an individual, there was also promise of conflict. That, that as Adam and Eve began to procreate, that ultimately there would be two seeds. There would be the seed of Satan and the seed of Eve. Those that would ultimately be rescued back. And so we do see fulfillment from Genesis 3. It's the, it's not the fulfillment that, that, uh, Eve had hoped for. Uh, it's a fulfillment of conflict as her boys are raised and ultimately one turns on the other. We also highlighted the fact that both of these brothers have, um, had jobs that were important. One was working in the field. One was raising food for the family while the other was working in the field and, and raising a clothing for the family. That God had demonstrated now that they had, had sinned and there was a need for clothing, that that clothing was to come from the skins of animals. And so you've got Abel who's raising the flocks that would have eventually provided uh, clothing for the family. You've got Cain that's raising the food for the family. So both these boys have... Uh, admirable jobs, jobs that contributed to the family. And we said last week that obviously God uh, had taught and instructed at least their parents, if not the entire family, about how to worship him. And Adam and Eve had instilled in their sons the responsibility to work hard, but not to uh, idolize their work. And that's a temptation for us today to become so consumed with our jobs to become so consumed with what we get back from our jobs that we become idolaters towards our jobs. And so what we see here is a pattern that's been set by the parents that in, in working hard, we are going to submit back to our creator a portion of what we earn, demonstrating that he's the source of that goodness to us. And so both Cain and Abel operate under that teaching. They both come to offer 
sacrifices and offerings to the Lord. One is regarded and one is rejected, the Bible tells us. And we speculated last week as to why this takes place, that that it's not based on Abel being a good boy and Cain being a bad boy. It's not that these guys show up to worship God and God says, well, you're good, so I'll take your sacrifice. You're bad. I will reject your sacrifice. We said it's possible that it's actually the opposite, that Abel may have come as the as the sinful sibling, the one that that recognized I am a sinner in need of grace. Here's my blood sacrifice to the Lord. It's it's eerily similar to the parable we referenced last week, the, the tax collector and the Pharisee that come before God. One saying, I am I am a sinner. Be merciful to me. The other beating his chest, saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. So it's very possible that Abel comes not to be accepted on his righteousness and actually comes offering absolutely nothing in, in, in terms of righteousness to God. We said that it's possible that that God rejects uh, Cain's sacrifice because there's no blood attached to it. But we also said that uh, there's places in Scripture where God mandates that, that these type of offerings come, these type of fruit offerings. And so uh, it may have been that there was really nothing wrong with Cain's sacrifice. Maybe he didn't bring his best. The Bible does highlight that Abel brought his best. Maybe Cain doesn't bring his best. But we settled in on the fact that ultimately it's the, the, the presence of faith with Abel and the absence of faith with Cain. That as we look a little bit more deeper into this story and we look at what Scripture has to say about these two individuals in the New Testament, that Abel was a man who, who desired relationship with God and demonstrates that through his sacrifice, whereas Cain operates off the mindset, let me satisfy God and then get back to what I want to do with my life. It was out of duty, out of obligation. Abel comes in faith. Cain comes with wicked, uh, wicked heart, wicked deeds in mind. And God says, I'm not going to take this. I'm not going to take your offering. I'm not going to take your sacrifice. God rebukes Cain, as we see here in uh, verses 6 and 7. But he does so like, account, like an accountability partner we highlighted last week. God doesn't come forcefully and he doesn't come punishing Cain for this. He comes with, with instruction in mind. He comes asking questions, much like we encourage our people in accountability groups here in this church. To come, not just talking about sin, but talking about the why behind the sin. So, so God doesn't just get on to Cain for being angry. He says, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? God says, I want to get to the heart of the issue. Why do you have issue with me? Because the issue is, is that if anybody's supposed to be angry here, it's God. God angry at Cain and his attitude, and yet Cain wants to play the role of God here and be angry towards God. God comes questioning Cain, giving him the opportunity to confess and repent. He encourages Cain to make the right choice, much like we would say should happen within our accountability groups. Why are you doing this? Here's what you need to be doing. God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. But if you do well, will you not be accepted? Conversation about the right choice versus the wrong choice. God offers warning about the consequences of not choosing rightly. Much again like our accountability groups where if this continues, if this persists, you're inviting God's discipline into your life. God is more concerned about our attitude in serving him versus us just simply serving him. That's what we learn from this first portion of the story. We also see how tragic it is that man has fallen into such a state of sin, whereas in chapter 3, Eve had to be talked into sin by the serpent. 
Now we're having to talk man out of sin. It shows the depth of our depravity as a result of Adam and Eve's choice. And we left off there in verse 7, so we'll pick up in verse 8 today. It says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, the vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In your notes here, number five, because this ties in with last week's uh, part one of Cain and Abel. Number five, the sinful act of Cain. The sinful act of Cain. We said last week that the the two seeds, the seed of Eve and the seed of Satan, uh, are, are shown here now. And we see Cain acting much like his his spiritual father now, Satan. In John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus talking about the serpent. In discussion with the Pharisees, he says, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies if you didn't know the context you could easily argue that he's referencing cain here versus satan because we see cain demonstrate himself as a murderer but first a liar we see these these things exhibited in cain's quality And it's flowing from the fact that he's completely disconnected from Yahweh. He's completely disconnected from his creator and has no intentions of being rescued back to him. The sinful act of Cain. We see, first of all, here in your notes that he denies opportunity. He denies opportunity. You'll remember that God did not punish Cain when he brought the wrong type of sacrifice or brought it with the wrong type of heart or didn't bring his best. God doesn't punish him. Instead, he offers counsel to him about how to fix the situation. He gives opportunity to Cain. Here's how to fix this. Here's how to make things right between me and you. But what we see here is that Cain denies that opportunity. He shows he doesn't really want accountability. He ignores all of God's instructions. He ignores all of God's instructions. And you may have been in accountability settings before where you're you're pouring into somebody, you're giving them advice, you're giving them counsel. And time after time after time, they seem to ignore those instructions. And honestly, it's demonstrating I'm not interested in accountability. I'm not interested in doing the right thing. And that's what Cain demonstrates here. He doesn't want to do the right thing. It says in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. We don't know what that conversation looked like, but we know that rather than turning to his brother for help, he blames his brother. 
He speaks to him and at some point in the conversation lures him out into the field where his parents can't see him, where perhaps his other siblings cannot see him so that he can ultimately go through with his premeditated murder. Right. So in our society, you take somebody's life. There's all types of different degrees and scenarios that you could be charged with. This is the worst kind. This is the premeditated first degree murder where I intended to do this. I set the stage to do this. It was thought out. It was not uh, a state of insanity that this has been building. This has been my intent. This is the worst type of murder. He's planned it. He lures his brother into it. What's tragic here is that rather than seeing Abel as an example to follow, he views him as a rival to destroy. See, Abel should have been the example, the the same example that Paul calls upon in the New Testament. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow my example. The same example that the elders, the leadership of our church is supposed to provide. The same that older men are to provide to younger men, older women to younger women. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Abel was that type of example. He had obviously figured out how to worship God rightly, that he was doing it through faith. So Cain realizes, I'm I'm off kilter with God here. There's something that needs to be fixed. The, the, The right mindset would be, I need to have a conversation with my brother. His sacrifice was accepted. He's doing things right. He's he's figured out something. But instead of seeing Abel as that type of example, as as that type of learning tool, instead he views him as a rival that needs to be destroyed. The issue was between Cain and God, not Cain and Abel. But that's how Cain wants to see it now. In my notes, I put any time a person is filled with envy over God's blessing on others. There will be disaster if that envy runs its course. Anytime a person is filled with envy over God's blessing on others, there will be disaster if that envy is allowed to run its course. When man takes issue with God about his sin, he will inevitably take issue with his fellow man over his blessing from God. That's what we have working it itself out here. Cain has issues with God about his sin. He's not right with God. And rather than focusing on that relationship, rather than trying to work that out, instead he sees God in good relationship with someone else. And rather than someone else enjoying the blessings of God, Cain says, I'm going to focus my intention on destroying that relationship versus restoring my relationship. And we see this and we say, you know, how, how could he be so, how could he be so dumb here? Like, how could he miss this? And we have to see that we're not that all different from this situation ourselves. That it's very easy for us to turn our attention to someone else's relationship with God and how that's thriving, compare it to our relationship with God, and versus seeing it as an example, we view them as a rival. We'd rather critique and criticize and tear down and, and try, to, try to hinder that relationship, try to draw out comparisons that, hey, they're not everything that they claim to be type of scenario to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves look better. We're not all that different than Cain's mindset here. Now, I don't think any of us have taken it as far as Cain has, obviously. But I think the point is, is that if it's allowed to fester, we're not exempt from potentially taking it this far to allow bitterness to really wear itself out in our life to where we carry through with some type of um, 
gross behavior that we see Cain follow through with. Anytime a person is filled with anger over God's blessing on others, there will be disaster. When man takes issue with God about his sin, he will inevitably take issue with his fellow man over his blessing from God. We have to be very cautious and careful about comparing ourselves to others. John chapter 21, we see this picture with the disciples. There's several incidences where the disciples compare themselves to each other. They want to be better than the other disciple. They get offended when, when they're not um, maybe giving the same level of prominence as somebody else that's been following Jesus. John 21, Peter has, has in our minds, disqualified himself. He's denied Jesus three times. And yet we see Jesus show up on the shore, fixes breakfast for everybody, and then in front of everybody gives Peter the opportunity to affirm him three times. Like That's what's so significant. Jesus keeps asking him about his love for him and allows Peter to confess in front of all the disciples three times his love for Christ after he's already denied him three times. So Jesus is restoring Peter because he's got big plans for Peter, right? Peter's got to go out and, and really begin the church planting movement. So, so Peter's on a spiritual high here. He's been restored, feeling good. But in verse 20 of chapter 21, it says, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. The one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? This disciple is John. Verse 21, when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, Jesus has just told Peter that ultimately he's going to die a martyr's death, which sounds tragic, but it's also affirming to Peter because what it says is, Peter, you're going to persevere to the end. You're going to die for me. You're going to make it. You're not going to, you're not going to deny me. You're not going to fall away from the faith. So Peter's thinking, okay, I've got death in my future, but it's a glorious death. It's a death where I make it. But then he wants to turn his attention to John. Well, what about John? What are you going to do with John? Like, how does his life play out? With the mindset almost of, is it, does he get something better than me? This is great what you're telling me, but what about John? And Jesus says, don't worry about him. You follow me. You take care of your responsibilities. Cain was preoccupied with Abel and his relationship with God, so much so that rather than working on his relationship with God, he wanted to destroy that relationship. Cain denies the opportunity placed before him to do right. But secondly, he denies his actions. He denies his opportunity. He follows through, has a conversation with his brother, lures him to the field. Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? God comes to Cain the same way he came to Adam and Eve and the same way he came to Cain the first time, asking questions. Questions that were meant to generate a repentful response. He gives him the opportunity to confess. What we find here from Cain is rather than justifying or explaining his actions, he denies his involvement completely. Sin has completely mastered him here. Right. So when God comes to Adam and Eve, they don't deny their actions. They don't try to say, I don't know what you're talking about. You know, God says, well, who told you you're naked? We don't think we're naked. We just like wearing fig leaves. We don't we just we're trying something new. They don't deny their actions. 
They admit this is what we did. Now they place the blame on someone else. They don't take responsibility for their actions, right? So we talked about when we confess our sin that a lot of times we're prone to say, yes, I did it, but, but this is why. This is the explanation. This is why I did it, right? We want to pass blame. We want to justify. Cain's not even trying to do that here. He's just simply flat out lying about it. I don't know what you're talking about. On top of that, why are you even asking me this? It's not my responsibility. Rather than justifying or explaining his actions, he denies his involvement completely. Sin has mastered him. What's encouraging for us here as believers is that sin will always be known by God. Why is that encouraging? Because it reminds us that we serve a God who doesn't have to be made aware of things to judge them. He doesn't have to wait for accusations. This should be encouraging to us. So, so as a principle, I tell parents all the time, I can't handle issues if you don't tell me about the issues. If there's things that are going on in our middle school, I can't handle them unless you make me aware of them. And when you make me aware of them, you can believe that I'm going to handle them and deal with them. But I can't do it if I'm not aware of it. We serve a God who does not have to be made aware of things. Right? He's a judge, but he's not a judge that sits by and waits for accusations to come. He's a judge that can involve himself in every situation because of his omniscience. Okay? So, so us as believers, as we experience mistreatment or, or trials or temptations and tribulations, if we experience someone who is, who is attacking us unjustly, we don't have to make that known to God. We don't have to start screaming and crying and, and appeal to God to get his attention. We don't worship Baal, right? Like so, so as Elijah went up against the prophets, they're, they're cutting themselves and trying to get the attention of their God. Our God already knows, which is an encouragement to us. It allows us to rest in his omniscience. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 32, verse 23, Moses talking about the the responsibility of Israel to do their part in claiming the land. And in Numbers 32, verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. So if you don't follow through with your actions, if you don't stay faithful like you're supposed to, you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Luke chapter 8. Verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Even in this verse, it's not that God will then be made aware when he comes. It's everyone else will be made aware of what God already knows. Right. So nothing lurks in the darkness. Nothing needs to be brought into the light for God. He's already aware. He already has intent plans for how he's going to handle it and deal with it. And that's an encouragement to us. It's an encouragement to us that in this situation, Cain, for all human purposes, would have gotten away with this. Would have gotten away with this, that there was nobody out there that would have seen him. 
This would have been the first murder, so I'm sure his parents and siblings would have been completely shocked about this. Maybe didn't even know that there was any friction between the two of them. He could have potentially gotten away with this, and God steps in, doesn't wait on some type of accusation, steps in seemingly immediately to address the situation. He doesn't have to wait for accusations. God is aware of the injustice done to his children. In Psalms, chapter 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Why is that precious? It's not because God enjoys death. It's not because he enjoys his children being hurt. It's precious because of the fact that that they are faithful to the end. They're faithful in the midst of death. They're faithful in him, trusting in him, who is the secure of their future. Revelation chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. These martyrs crying out to God. How long? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Who were to be killed as they themselves had been. See, see God's, God's got in mind how many are supposed to die for him. And he's waiting until that number is filled up. And his encouragement is nothing's being missed. Nothing's being overlooked. I'm aware of everything. Be patient. As we're going to see in a minute, when he comes, he comes to bring vengeance. He comes to bring everything to light. Things that he's already aware of. So talking about Genesis, talking about origins, talking about our knowledge and how we learn about God. Things that need to be known to people in Uganda when we go. Because even those that have a knowledge of God, from, from my conversation with the pastor there, it's a, it's a bad knowledge, a bad theology, a wrong theology of who God is and how he operates. We learn here very early that we serve a God who knows things and who is all about justice for those that have been treated unjustly. He shows up here without accusation, fully aware of the situation, but comes graciously, even to sinners, comes graciously giving Cain the opportunity to repent. But Cain denies his actions and then number three in your notes here denies responsibility he denies responsibility he questions god's right to question him that's ultimately what he's doing here so it's it's i don't know what you're talking about and i'm not even sure why you're asking me because it's it's not my business what abel's doing wants to turn wants to turn it back to god and say Not only do I not know, don't ask me this question. It's not your right. It's not your prerogative to ask me this question because it's not my responsibility. Whatever happened to Abel is his own fault, not mine, Cain says. We'll see down the road in Matthew 27, 25, that when the Jews are prepared to kill Jesus, they they take responsibility. Let his blood be on our hands. Right? So they take it even further down the road. When they're ready to kill innocent blood, it's, it's let the blood be on our hands. Here, Cain says, don't know what you're talking about. Not my responsibility. He raises the question, am I my brother's keeper? This word for keep is the same word used 
earlier in Genesis, back in Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In Genesis um, 3.24, the same word used for what the cherubim were to do. He drove out the man at the east of the Garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Guarding it, keeping it, protecting it. So ultimately, Cain's question is, am I to protect my brother? Cain has a destructive mindset rather than a constructive mindset when it comes to his relationship with Abel. He says, do I even have an obligation? Do I even have a prerogative to protect my brother? Am I supposed to be looking out for him? Am I supposed to be his keeper is the question. What you may have had is that Abel may have been functioning in that role. In that conversation that we're not given insight into, it's very possible that Abel was aware that there was a breakdown between Cain and God. It may have been that that conversation started out with Abel trying to come to Cain and say, follow me as I follow Jesus. It may have been that Cain was seeing Abel function like a brother's keeper. But he wants to turn the, the attention and say, it's not my job, it's not my responsibility. One of the commentators that I was reading said, if a nation, family, or church is to survive, the people must be responsible for the well-being of one another. If a nation, family, or church is to survive, the people must be responsible for the well-being of one another. That's true for our church, right? The problems of our church, the the things that need to be resolved in our church cannot fall squarely on the shoulders of the elders. That as a member of our church, when you when you decide to settle down and stay here, you become a member of Sovereign Hope. Every problem of our church is, is your problem. And you have something to offer to the solution to that problem. It's not just for the leadership to figure it out. It's not just for the leadership to tend to the souls of the people of our church. All of us have responsibility in that. And if we're to be successful as a church, if we're to thrive as a church, if we're to send out people to plant other churches, then it requires all of us embracing the problems of each other, the needs of each other. Embracing this mindset of being a brother's keeper, something I want you to write down. And we'll use brother synonymously with with man and woman, but uh, some things that our brothers need for us to be keepers of. My brothers have needs to be met. My brothers have needs to be met. Sins to be killed. Burdens to be carried. Wisdom to be shared. Joys to be celebrated and sorrows to be comforted. My brothers have needs to be met. Philippians 2, 3 through 4 tells us that we're to, we're to look not only to our own interests, not only to our own needs, but to the needs of others, right? There, there, there is the mandate to be your brother's keeper. The, the, the implication that Paul says is, don't just think about yourself. Don't just think about your relationship with God. Cain was right to be thinking about Abel and, and his relationship with God, but he took it the wrong way. He became a rival rather than a teammate. See, as a teammate, Cain would have encouraged Abel's relationship with God. As a rival, I'm going to destroy it because it gets in my way. Paul says, don't look just to your own needs. Look to the needs of others. 
My brothers, the people in my church have needs to be met, sins to be killed. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us. Hebrews chapter 3, the, the encouragement that we need others to fight sin. Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes. I'm to, I'm to meet his needs. I'm to help him fight sin. I'm to protect him from being deceived by sin. My brother has burdens to be carried. Galatians 6, 1 through 2. So in trying to help him defeat sin and not be consumed by sin and deceived by sin, it's inevitable that at times he will be. And Galatians 6, 1 through 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself. Lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Burdens to be carried, wisdom to be shared. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 20. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Joys to be celebrated, sorrows to be comforted. Romans twelve fifteen. rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. It's not fun to rejoice by yourself, right? Like, you ever been in a situation where you're excited about something and you're looking around and like nobody else is excited? Like, part of rejoicing is having company to rejoice with. So when I'm watching a football game, taking it from a spiritual level just down to the mundane level, when I'm watching a football game, I'm texting people every time something good happens, Right? Because I want to rejoice with people. I want to be excited about things. So this fall when I was sitting in the deer stand and big giant deer walks out. Right? First time I've ever seen a big giant deer and I shoot it. Adam Long's the first person I call. You're not going to believe this. I shot a big deer. Get up here. Help me find it. Right? And then when we don't find it, I call Rob at Snowbird. You're not going to believe this. I didn't kill that big deer. Right? Rejoicing and weeping. Like we want company. In those times, it gives meaning to those emotions that we're feeling. See, our accountability groups, we miss the point if our accountability groups are viewed as a time to show up. Here's what I did. What did you do? All right, let's pray. It's got to be so much more than that. Right? So, so in my accountability group, we show up. There's times, there's weeks where we talk far more about what we've done and the sins that we're struggling with. There's some weeks we show up and we just rejoice together about things going on in our life and about how God is working and providing and giving us victory. There's times when we have to weep together because there's sorrowful things that we're going through. There's times when we show up and we spend the whole time talking about wisdom that we need about decisions that we've got to make. We don't cover all of these every time that we meet. But what we do in our accountability group is we've provided an environment where any of those things could happen on any given time we meet. And it also gives us direct people to go to at any point during the month when we need to have that type of experience where, where we're confessing sin. Hey, I'm, I'm being deceived by this. I need help with this. Where I can get wisdom. I can get rejoicing. I can get someone who wants to comfort me in my sorrow. Someone who wants to bear my burden. It's an environment where I can share needs and know that my guys are going to help take care of my needs. The implication is that, yes, you're your brother's keeper, Cain. Yes, you have responsibility here. And, yes, we have responsibility within our church. 
to take care of each other. And these are just some, some brief ways that I wrote down. We could probably expand upon this list. But within this church, within this family here, needs meet, need to be met. Sins need to be killed. Burdens need to be carried. Wisdom needs to be shared. Joys need to be celebrated. And sorrows need to be comforted. Back to Genesis 4. Moving beyond the sinful act of Cain, we come to the punishment of Cain. The punishment of Cain. So God bypasses talking with Cain. Now he realizes Cain's not interested in having a conversation about this. And so he moves directly into the discipline portion. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. The punishment of Cain ultimately is separation from God and family. Number one in your notes, God questions giving opportunity for confession. Once again, God opens with a question, giving Cain the opportunity to confess. But secondly, God curses giving punishment for his sin. God questions giving that opportunity for confession. Cain rejects that opportunity, and so God moves right to the curse, giving punishment for his sin. The ground curse is intensified for Cain. It will not yield for the farmer any longer. You've got Cain who has built his entire life around farming, right? So in talking with dad and talking with Adam, he's allowed Adam to teach him everything that he can know about farming. And God has taken that from him, stripped that from him. He says the ground is cursed already with thorns and thistles. But in addition to that now, you're not going to be able to get it to generate what you need to eat. And this is so true oftentimes that when sin persists in our life, oftentimes it will wreck the very livelihood that we know. Many a man and many a woman has been caught in sin that has ripped them away from a job, from a livelihood that they had spent so many years investing in. I know so many individuals that have forfeited their role in ministry for the fleeting pleasure of sin. Everything they had gone to school for, everything they had invested in, everything that they had thought in their mind, this is what my life will be, taken away so quickly because of a choice to sin. Cain built his livelihood around farming. It's what he knew. It's what he loved. God says, the very thing that you love will not work now. You will not be able to participate in what you have come to know. God takes it away from him. Number three, God banishes giving safety to others. God banishes giving safety to others. Cain wants to deny responsibility for family. God will now deprive him of his family. Cain says, I'm not my brother's keeper. God says, fine, then we're not interested in having you around the family. If you're not interested in taking care of the family, if you're not interested in in contributing to the family, then we have to remove you from the family. It's the same in, in, in regards to church discipline, right? God's, God's motivation here is, yes, you need to be punished, but everybody else needs to be protected from you, Cain. You killed Abel. You're a murderer. Who's to say you won't do it again? And so God says, we've got to remove you. We're going to continue to work with you potentially. It's still available, but we're going to do it out here so that these people are safe. That's the heart of church discipline, right? It's an individual who says, yes, yes, yes to sin. 
says no, no, no when he's confronted with it. Paul, time and time in the New Testament, says you've got to get that person out of the family because others will see their sin and say, oh, it's okay to act like that. I mean, just imagine if Cain's brought back and, and, and says, I killed my brother, and on top of that, I don't really think I'm supposed to take care of you. Right? Like, I'm not my brother's keeper. Imagine how the other brother and sister would feel thinking, uh, so you did this and you're not sorry for it. Um, what's to prevent you from doing this again, right? So, so God says, you're out. You don't want family responsibility, then you won't be around the family. Same within the church. You don't want responsibility for the family. You don't want to protect the family. Then we're going to have to pull you out of the family so that everybody else can be protected. Right? That's the heart here behind why God banishes him. It's for the safety of others. It's to take care of the rest of the family. Cain's punishment foreshadows the coming punishment to all of Satan's seed, right? 2 Thessalonians 1.9. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. This talking about those that afflict the saints. Now, we rejoice over the fact that there is coming a day when God will take all of the afflictors and banish them for eternity. But hopefully we're in the mindset where we don't find joy in that right now as far as, yeah, they're going to get what they deserve, right? Like we want to be like so many missionaries that we've read about who on their, on their deathbed are still praying that God will save those that are killing them. So we don't, we don't revel in this. We don't, we don't find joy in this. I had a weird conversation studying at McDonald's two weeks ago. I think it was. Um, there's a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses that come in there, I guess, after their service on Saturday. And sometimes they'll come up and talk because they see me studying. And I had one of them come up and he said, what's your favorite verse? I said, Romans 8, 28. Um, you know, I love the fact that God works everything for his good, for the, for his glory, takes care of his children. I said, I find so much comfort in that. I said, what's yours? He quoted some obscure verse from Psalms about how God's going to kill everybody at the end. And, and, and all the bad people go away. He's like, isn't that awesome? And I was like, eh, like. It's a weird verse to quote like right here. Like, I don't know you. You don't know me. It's true. Yeah. Like there's coming a day when when the bad people go away for eternity and we find joy in that knowing that our state is not a constant state where we will always be afflicted. But hopefully we're, we're burdened and broken as Paul was when he says, I'll give up my salvation for my people to be saved, that we're broken over those that afflict us. But there is comfort in knowing that the afflictors will not always be here. This is a foreshadowing of what's coming down the road. Cain is punished and removed from God's presence and removed from the presence of the family. Something that's foreshadowing what's coming one day for all those that reject the gospel. Cain is now banned to live without peace. He fears retaliation. He fears physical and social exposure. You see in his conversation with God when, when this punishment's being handed out, he feels like it's too much because he's fearful of how people are going to treat him now. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Cain is, is, is put into a state of wandering. He cannot live with peace now. But ultimately, even in punishment, God offers protection. 
God offers protection to Cain, which implies that potentially there's still the hope that Cain could be saved. We have no reason to believe that he ever responds in repentance, but God says in verse 15, Not so, if anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. The Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, there's, there's a lot of speculation as to what this mark is and, and what its significant was. There's even those that would say that this is mistranslated a little bit and instead should be understood as God giving Cain a sign, much like he gave Gideon a sign with the fleece that, that he was going to do what he said. So there's some speculation that this was between Cain and, and God, that he did something to show him that he meant business, that he was going to take care of him. Others would say that there was some type of physical marking placed on him, it would be pointless to speculate this morning because there's absolutely nothing here or anywhere else in Scripture that would give me even a smidgen of, of confidence to tell you I think this is what it was. We do know that it was significant enough to where it was known publicly in verse 24, which we'll see later on. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This guy's boasting about the people that he's murdered, and he references this. He references knowing that there's a punishment on anybody that kills Cain. He says, my punishment's going to be even greater because of the amount of murders that I've committed. So it was a publicly known thing that to kill Cain brought a curse upon you. Whether that was through a physical marking, whether that was through uh, reputation, we're not really told. Uh, but what's significant is that it really did preserve his life for as long as God wanted it to be preserved because it was known by others. The implication for us from all this today. An unforgiving spirit hinders worship and destroys fellowship. An unforgiving spirit hinders worship and destroys fellowship. Cain was unforgiving or was unwilling to to forgive, unwilling to to uh, to forgive his brother, to, to forgive anything that had gone on between them, but also unwilling to make things right with God. And it, it hinders his worship and ultimately destroys his fellowship. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, You have heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard you be put in prison. The implication here is that if you know somebody has something against you or you have something against somebody else, that it needs to be resolved as quickly as possible because it hinders your worship. So there was conflict between Cain and Abel, conflict that he was not willing to work out, conflict that would have prevented him from worshiping God in the future. His unforgiving spirit was hindering him and it destroyed his fellowship. Matthew chapter 6 Verse 14, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The implication is that Cain was never going to be right with God moving forward if he was unwilling to get things worked out with his brother. And he was not willing. 
And so he had severed his relationship with God because of it. Jude 11 warns us against going the way of Cain. What does it mean by that? Well, the way of Cain means it's envy towards the righteous. Cain was envious towards the righteous. He disregards warnings of sin. He denies responsibility for sin. And he protests punishment for sin. We cannot separate our relationship with God from our relationship with others. 1 John 2 and 1 John 3 both talk extensively about the fact that if we say we love God, we have to love other people. We don't love others and we don't truly love God. The way of Cain is to envy, have envy towards those that are righteous, to disregard warnings of sin, to deny responsibility for your sin, and to protest the punishment for sin. Application for us this morning will be done. How do we, how do we respond to God's discipline? Three things I want you to see. How do we respond to God's discipline in our life? First of all, be like Adam. Be like Adam and embrace the grace of God's discipline. Be like Adam and embrace the grace of God's discipline. You'll remember when we were in Genesis 3, I, I compared the two responses. That when, when punishment comes to Adam, right, like your wife's going to want to rule over you. You're going to have difficulty growing food. Your wife's going to have difficulty in childbirth, which means you're going to have difficulty in helping with that process, right? Adam could have easily said, this is far too much for me. All I did was eat a piece of fruit, and this is what I get. Instead, we said that Adam looks to his wife and gives her a name, a really weird, inopportune time to be naming your wife. But it was an expression of faith where he says, I'm trusting. I heard everything that you said, but I'm really honing in on the fact that you said that you're going to send somebody to defeat the serpent. And so Eve, you're now going to be known as Eve, the life giver. Right? So Adam doesn't respond and say, no, 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 no. This is, this is not, this is not fair. He embraces it and says, I'm going to highlight the grace that is all over this discipline and, 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 and names his wife. Be like Adam and embrace the grace of God's discipline. Secondly, reject the way of Cain to see injustice in God's dealings with sin. Reject the way of Cain to see injustice in God's dealings with sin. All this emotion that you see from Cain is self-pity, not repentance. I mean, he, he, he hates the punishment for sure. Much like those in Revelation 16, verse 10. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish. And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So, so there's anguish here with Cain. He hates what's the consequence of his sin. There's no repentance. It's self-pity. The tragedy here is that Cain gets far less than he deserved, but argues it is far more than he can bear. Right? Do you see that? He gets far less than what he really deserves here. I mean, he's, he's allowed to live, but he wants to argue this is far more than I can bear. It's far more gracious than what Abel received from him, though, right? Abel, Abel's done nothing to him that we're aware of, and, and he gets killed for it. Cain says, this is far more than I can bear, and fails to see it's far more gracious than how he dealt with his own anger. He feels vindicated with how he satisfied, satisfied his own anger, right? I'm angry at Abel. I killed him. That's, that's right. That's the right thing to do. 
He feels vindicated, but he's displeased with how God wants to satisfy his anger. Cain should have felt the guilt was more than he could bear versus the punishment being too great. You don't see any remorse here. He's not saying the guilt of killing my brother is more than I can bear. It's the punishment for what I've done is far more than I can bear. His claims of his punishment not being fair shows that he did not view his actions as serious. He fails to see the teaching of Romans 2 that God's kindness is meant to lead him to repentance. Be like Adam. When God deals with your sin, be like Adam and embrace the grace of his discipline. Reject the way of Cain, who wants to argue with God, wants to not take responsibility, wants to to deny his actions, and then wants to see injustice in God's punishment. And then lastly, to see Jesus as the better able. To see Jesus as... As the better Abel. As, as great as Abel seems to be in this story and as, as great as his faith seems to be as it's highlighted through scripture, there's great deficiency in Abel as a man. He's not a perfect individual. He did not die a perfect death. Hebrews 12, 24. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Let's compare the two bloods here. You'll remember that, that, that God says that Abel's blood still speaks today. That, that, that his testimony lives on. His life and the tragedy that happened to him. When God says that, that your brother's blood is screaming to me from the ground. The, the, the screams are for vengeance. That's what, that's what the blood screams. is that I was killed wrongfully. And God needs to deal with it. That's what Abel's blood screams. But what Christ's blood screams is forgiveness. The opportunity to be justified with God. Because while it was wrong for Christ to be killed, it was right once God takes the sins of the world and applies it to Jesus. His wrath is satisfied rightly. And so now the bloodshed of Jesus Christ does not scream for vengeance. It's not a vengeful God that comes and says, how dare you kill my son? Let me wipe all of creation out. It's I killed my son and I've shed his blood and his blood now screams to the ends of the earth until Jesus returns. That forgiveness is available. That a perfect life has been shed. A perfect life that is taken on sin to absorb the wrath of God and the hope now for us. We don't cringe at the blood of Jesus. We embrace the blood of Jesus. First John chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Abel's story is a tragedy. His, his blood is shed wrongfully. God punishes. He brings judgment upon Cain for it. There's lots to be learned In that story. But the truth of the story. Is that a better Abel came. An Abel who was hated by his brothers. Hated by those that he that he sought to be a brother's keeper for. One who was the perfect example of how to reach God. The one who came to serve rather than to be served. The better Abel comes. And so while there's things to glean for our life from the story. Ultimately it points us to Jesus. That Jesus is the better hero for this story. 
That, that while there's things to learn from Abel, there's things to, to point us to in Jesus, that his blood was shed, and his blood has the ability to save. His blood has the ability to forgive. So we leave with that encouragement today. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you again that we have the written word of God in a language that we can read and understand. God, help us to realize that that the things that we know about you, while we may not learn new things today about you through this, we're reminded that the things that we believe about you are rooted in Scripture and not just in Sunday school lessons that we've been taught from people in the past. But the truth that you are an all-knowing God who knows all sin is rooted in Scripture, not just because our parents told us that. The fact that you're coming to avenge those that have rejected the gospel is a truth rooted in Scripture. The fact that your kindness delays your return is rooted in Scripture. And so, Father, we, we, we see Cain, and God, I pray that you would protect us from being judgmental of Cain. Instead, help us to see our own tendencies to act like Cain. To be envious of others that are doing the right thing when we're not. And instead of it being an inspiration to us to follow their example, Father, we recognize that a lot of times we view them as our rival. And we'd rather bicker and complain and, and tear them down versus humbly submitting to follow after them. God, I pray that you would help us to, to embrace responsibility when we fail you. To not deny it. To not try to pass blame on others. God, I pray that our accountability groups within our church would serve, that they would encourage, God, that we would be able to, to carry out what we see in the New Testament as being a part of the normal Christian life. God, help us to see that we have a responsibility to be our brother's keeper, to, to rejoice and to weep and to carry, to help fight. God, I pray that we would see that in order to carry out the commands of the New Testament, it necessitates us being all in with a local church family. And God, we, we, we leave today encouraged knowing that, that Jesus is the better, the better hero of this story. And Father, we thank you and praise you that you sent your son to die in our place. When we came offering our sacrifices of good works, you rejected those rightfully. And Father, I'm thankful that we can now turn to see the better sacrifice that has been offered on our behalf and that you do not now require us to do anything but place our faith in Jesus Christ who offered the better sacrifice. God, we thank you for his blood today. We thank you that it was shed on our behalf. We're thankful that it forgives us of our sins. God, help us to live in light of that truth as we leave today, as we start a new week, as we interact with with family and friends and co-workers this week. God, I pray that you give us grace in our speech. Be the example that you've called us to be. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.